You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. This is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome to Win the Day. The quote for this episode comes from Rumi and says, what you seek is seeking you. Whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast, there's a strong chance that you've been feeling a great deal of stress lately. And 2020 certainly seems like a year of transition for all of us. What started with the Australian bushfires, where we thought things couldn't possibly get any worse, led to a pandemic. Job losses skyrocketed, incidents of violence dominated the news cycle, and if you combine that with the forced isolation that most people have been in for a good chunk of the year, it's an absolute recipe for disaster for our mental health. So how bad is it? Well, Harvard suggests that up to 80% of doctors' visits are caused by stress, and that was before all of this hit. This made it the perfect time to have Emily Fletcher, who is regarded as the leading expert in meditation for high performance on the Win The Day show. Now, I want to clarify something right off the bat here. Emily is not the person you might have in mind when you think of a meditation guru. It's not about sitting cross-legged in front of an incense candle while you chant out loud and block out your thoughts. What she teaches is extremely practical and eliminates the shortfalls that I've personally experienced from other types of meditation. Every session also ties in directly to goal setting and manifestation, which is one of the attributes I love most about it. But don't just take my word for it. Emily has worked with Navy SEALs, NBA players, Academy Award winners, leading physicians, and globally recognized CEOs. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Today Show, and Vogue magazine, and she's spoken at places like Google, Viacom, and Harvard Business School. Today, the Ziva Technique founder has taught more than 20,000 students around the world how to to perform at their best. Emily's new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, is also a wonderful introduction to the challenges we face today and a practical guide to living at your best in all areas of your life. In this interview, we talk about her 10-year career on Broadway, what she teaches the most elite performers on the planet, how to reach new levels of productivity despite what's going on in the world, and how you can use meditation to unlock your full potential. Let's get into it. Well, Emily Fletcher, great to see you again. Welcome to Win the Day. I am real happy to be here and happy to see your face again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, you've done work with a bunch of uh, seriously high performers, so I'm really excited for this conversation today. Let's start broadly. What's the problem with society that meditation solves? (laughs) That's a long list right now (laughs) because I think the underlying problem for so many symptoms is stress. There's so much stress in our nervous system, so much stress that we've inherited from previous generations. And that is showing up in big ways right now. It weakens our immune system, which is making us more vulnerable to the pandemic. That inherited generational trauma is certainly pouring gasoline on the fire of the racial injustices happening around the world, but certainly in the U.S. And it also makes it harder to heal them because when you're very stressed, it's hard to let go of your own unconscious biases. It's hard to even look at them. And so once you start meditating, once you start getting rid of your stress, not only from today, but all that accumulated stress from your past, it really revolutionizes the way you interact with other humans, the way your immune system works, your productivity, your clarity, your creativity. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty 
profound list of changes that start to happen in your brain and in your body when you really handle the root issue, which is stress for so many of us. And I guess it's weird, isn't it, that we have these standards of living and healthcare and everything else that continues to increase, yet society is more and more stressed. Is, it, is part of the issue that it's sneaking up on a lot of us? We're living in, in air conditioning. We're sleeping in very comfortable beds. We've got very warm showers and, and Nespresso machines. Yeah, is, is part of that these creature comforts that we, that we have and we love? I, I switched to cold showers a week ago. I'm a massive convert, but prior to that, I love nothing more than a hot shower, but I mean these creature comforts that we all that we all have. Uh, surely that contributes in part to um, a lot of the stress that we're feeling because it just doesn't a bit of a contradiction, and we're getting all of this sensory overload from technology. Well, it's an interesting double-edged sword, like our modern advancements, because on one hand, you know, we have plumbing, which has really decreased communicable diseases. We do have surgeries and antibiotics, and, and these things have really upped our longevity and the quality of our life. And the other side of that is that much of our modern conveniences, many of our creature comforts, as you're calling them, are directly um, opposed to nature. <laughs> like staying up late and looking at your phone, your brain thinks that the sun is up and that it should be awake, you know, drawing the shades and sleeping past sunrise. Your body thinks that the sun has not yet risen, eating food that isn't food. This over time creates chronic stress in our body. The fact that our soil is depleted from over farming, our bodies are not being you know, nourished in the way that they could and should be. The fact that we're over-sexualized but not having enough sex, this is changing us. The fact that we don't have our feet in the soil there's so many quote-unquote modern conveniences, plane travel, car travel, um, eating mangoes in the wintertime, you know, all of these things, microwaves. These all seem convenient and they might seem to be saving us time in the short term, but over the long run, these, these chronic stresses really cost our bodies something. They're asking our bodies to adapt. So none of the things that I mentioned are inherently bad, but over time, you're asking your body to adapt, adapt, adapt. And when you burn up something called adaptation energy, and then you have another demand on your nervous system, your body will launch involuntarily into fight or flight. You know, whether you've read Eat, Pray, Love or not, whether you've read <laughs> Think and Grow Rich or not, like if you're stressed and you're out of adaptation energy, your body's going to start preparing for that imaginary tiger. And that's, that's unfortunately what so many of us are dealing with is this low-grade chronic stress, which is different than something like a cold shower. Mm. So a cold shower or a boxing match or you know, a sprint, you know, these, even though they are quote unquote stressful, this is what, how I would define good stress or hormesis, where you're actually uh, inspiring your strong mitochondria, which are the energy centers of our cells to get stronger, and you're killing off the weak mitochondria. So acute, short-term, intentional stress, uh, that can be very good for you and strengthening to you. But the low-grade chronic stress, this is what's making us stupid, sick, and slow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in your awesome new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, you mentioned it's not bad to get stressed, it's bad to stay stressed. How does someone disconnect from a world that's increasingly connected? And I mean, we're multitasking. People are on their phones while they're eating dinner and, and watching television. How do we disconnect from that stress? Well, I would even take that one step further. People are now on their phones when they're meditating. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> why are you like, it's like having an AA meeting in a liquor store. Like, why would you want to be tethered to your phone for your meditation practice? And so it's like, can we have one thing? 
one thing that we do without our phones. Yeah, it's nothing sacred um, anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why I'm so big on self-sufficiency and giving people the tools to do meditation on their own, you know, without needing a Wi-Fi or headphones or someone guiding you. Um, but how can we unplug? Well, I think one is letting go of the all be happy when syndrome, which is what you and I were talking about earlier. This idea that your happiness is going to come on the other side of a person, a place, a thing, another follower on Instagram, another 100 likes on your post. It's that little dopamine hit that we're even subconsciously chasing and craving. And if we can stop to really remember that our happiness exists inside of us, it exists right now, then perhaps that will stop the constant searching, the constant scrolling, the constant checking. And it's a practice, you know, because we're all addicted. And so just like strengthening any muscle, it's like, oh, let me put my phone down. Let me even turn it off. Let me put it in a drawer. Let me create a consequence around it. I'm big on promises and consequences. Um, my rule for myself right now is that I have to be like in bed by midnight, asleep, like lights out by 1230, or I can't be on social media at all the next day. <laughs> and I'd say of, of all my vices, um, I actually don't have that many vices, like social media is my big vice. And so, and I know that it's an addiction because I, I feel myself like just, I'll do it mindlessly or I'll, I'm like searching. And, and so I have to create some boundaries for myself. Otherwise it becomes destructive. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. My wife and I, we have a 13-month-old daughter. And I mean, it's what a weird world we live in where you've got to consciously say to yourself, look, I'm going to leave my phone on airplane mode in a different room so I can actually be present with my daughter. Um, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And, yeah, good uh, for you. Yeah, and because uh, as you said, like I'm completely addicted to my phone and you and I, you and I teach this stuff, yet we're still uh, not immune from, from those things. And another really interesting thing I found in your book was when you said that nature doesn't allow your body to uh, your body and mind to rest at the same time. And I found that really interesting. Uh, a lot of people associate exercise as a way of getting a mental reset, which can be beneficial if maybe they're an investment banker doing really long hours and they have an opportunity to go out for a run by the river. But when it comes to peak performance, what's the optimal balance between exercise and sleep and meditation? Yeah. So I think, like you mentioned, it's important to differentiate exercise versus meditation because so many people say, well, working out is my meditation. And exercise is good for you, of course, but it is exciting your nervous system. You are speeding up your metabolic rate, whereas meditation is the opposite. In Ziva, we are de-exciting the nervous system. We are decreasing the metabolic rate. And the really important differentiating point there is that exercise is good enough to handle your stress in the now. Like you said, I'm an investment banker. I have this crazy like deal go down. I'm going to go take a run and run off the stress. Because really, when we get stressed, our body's preparing for an imaginary tiger attack. So we need to either fight or flee. You know, people are like, oh, I box out my stress. So I run off my stress. And again, that's good enough to handle your stress from today. But if you want to handle the backlog of accumulated stresses that we have in our cellular memory, then we have to give the body rest deep, deep rest. And that's what meditation is doing. So I think that both is really the answer. And I think that, you know, it's a personal preference as to what you do first. My loose recommendation is that you wake up, meditate, and then work out because you're giving your body this rest so you have more energy for the workout. Um, the only exception to that would be yoga because yoga was designed to prepare the body for meditation. You know, every asana, every pose, asana is a Sanskrit word that means seat. 
And so what we're doing with yoga is we're preparing the body to become a seat for meditation to sit in. Ah, like Shavasana. And, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shavasana, which actually means corpse pose, which is practicing dying. And that's sometimes what I'll say to folks about Ziva when I'm like, well, Ziva is actually practicing dying. It's like you get to that Shavasana without having to do an hour and a half of yoga. Within 30 to 45 seconds, you're moving beyond the left brain, which is in charge of individuality, and you're tapping into that right brain, which is in charge of totality. Um, but for me personally, like I meditate every day, twice a day, and I exercise about three times a week. Um, I could probably stand to up that, especially in this sort of sedentary time of pandemic. I, yeah, I, quarantine. I, <laughs> yeah, my normal life is so active, you know, in New York City and subway and stairs and meetings and, you know, walking 10 city blocks. So normally I could exercise once or twice a week and, and feel strong and my body has the energy moving enough. But because I'm much more sedentary now, I'm needing to exercise more. Yeah, sure. Well, let's dive into your story for a moment. So you had a 10-year career on Broadway, which is a very public forum of mental and physical capabilities. What was it about a career on Broadway that appealed to you in the first place? Mm -hmm. So I remember when I was in fourth grade, I was sitting on the floor of my mom's bathroom reading the newspaper, and she was in the shower, and I saw an ad for a thing called Young Actors Theatre. And I said to my mom, I said, oh, I need to go here. I'm going to be an actress. And I knew in fourth grade at eight years old that that was what I was going to do. There was no wondering or guessing or wishing or hoping. It was just like, oh, that, that's what I'm going to do. And it was just one of those crystal clear moments. And I, and I knew even then that it, it, I wasn't going to stay there. I knew I would do it for a while and then I would move on to helping people. And so I started at Young Actors, which is this amazing children's theater in Tallahassee, Florida, where I got to study voice and dance and acting pretty intensely. I would go every day after school. And that was in addition to my other dance classes and then doing musical theater in my high school. So even at a public school in Tallahassee, Florida, I had a pretty intense um, training in the, these three disciplines. And then I went to Florida State to study musical theater and then moved to New York in 2001, right before September 11th, three weeks before September 11th, wow. and was very fortunate to get my first job my second day in New York. So I was employed when all of Broadway shut down due to 9-11, because you know, tourism stopped. And so a lot of my friends and colleagues who were starting their careers as actors went years being unemployed because the whole industry shut down that took a long time to recover. So the fact that I was able to start like right out of the gate working, and then I did, I worked for about 10 years back to back to back, um, which is you know, a blessing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an intense, very competitive industry. Yeah. And I think that that's where I really learned, like you said, to use my voice, my mind, my body as an instrument and where I got my, my hardcore high performance training, which I've now taken into the meditation arena in, with yeah. Ziva. Into the trenches. Well, how did you, oh yeah, trial by fire of, of the whole industry, you've learned, it, you've learned mm -hmm. it firsthand. How did you deal with literal stage fright before you even discovered meditation? Mm, not well. <laughs> <laughs> not well. I mean, I guess okay, because I was, I was working, but it was, it was that that drove me to meditation. So my last Broadway show was a chorus line where my job was to understudy three of the lead roles. And that means you have no idea which character you're going to play. Um, when you show up at the theater, sometimes I would start the show as one character, halfway through they'd switch me to another one. Or I would just be chilling in my dressing room doing my taxes and they would say, Emily Fletcher, we need you on stage. <laughs> I would start panicking, having full-blown anxiety attacks, grabbing all three of my costumes, running down seven flights of stairs. Someone would throw me in an outfit and sometimes I would be on stage before I knew which character I was playing. 
Some people are good at this job. I am not one of them. I was having panic attacks. I was going gray at, my, at the tender age of 26. I was having debilitating insomnia. I was getting sick five or six times a year. And thankfully, this amazing woman, and you'll like this story, this amazing woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room. She's understudying five of the leads, including Cassie. So incredibly hard job. And this woman is nailing it. I mean, every song she sang was a celebration. Every dance she danced was a celebration. Every bite of food she ate, she was like, oh, this is sensational. And, and she was an Australian. So first I just thought she was just an Aussie because like all of y'all are happy. And I don't know <laughs> what you put in the water down there. It's <laughs> so Australian like, oh, coffee. <laughs> it really is, man. That's strong stuff. Um, but finally I was like, no, this is special. Like I need to have some of what she's having. And I said, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate to which I promptly rolled my eyes and was like, oh God, one of you. And then finally, I was so embarrassed about my performance. I was sucking so bad at my job that I thought I have to try something. So I went along to this intro to meditation talk. I liked what I heard. I signed up for this course. And on the first day of my first course, I was meditating. I did not know what that meant, but I was in a different state of consciousness than I'd ever been in. And I liked it. And that night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. And I have every night since that was... 12 years ago. And then I stopped going gray. I'm 41 years old now. And you know, I've not been to the salon because it's illegal. Um, <laughs> so this is real <laughs> here right now. <laughs> um, I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I um, started enjoying my job again. So I just thought, why does everybody not do this? Left Broadway, went to India and started a three-year training process to teach. Wow. And now you're a veteran of meditation and teaching others how to unlock that extraordinary performance. What did you notice with the meditation practices that you do now with everything with Ziva meditation that was missing from your traditional and more mainstream meditation? Yeah, well, it's interesting because when I first learned, I had the blessing of beginner's mind. Like 12 years ago, there were no apps. There was no Oprah Chopra. There was no drop-in studios. I know that it's hard for people to conceptualize now, but it was really just like monks and me in New York. <laughs> I mean, that's not totally true, but it was not nowhere near as mainstream as it is now. So I had the gift of no comparison. I was just like, oh, here's this thing. And it made my life so much better. Now, interestingly, what people consider mainstream meditation is the, is the free apps. You know, there's like hundreds of millions of downloads of these different apps and, and then very little continued usage of them. And so I think what, what people now consider mainstream are, of the apps are actually what I would call mindfulness. And so mindfulness is very good at dealing with your stress in the now. Mindfulness is the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And it is necessary, especially in this day and age when we've all become bulimic of the brain. Um, the type of meditation that I teach at Ziva is all about getting rid of your stress from the past. And that's not an insignificant shift because I would say that that eradication of the backlog of cellular stress is really what gives you this surge in cognitive ability, this surge in productivity, because it's that, like we were saying earlier, that chronic low-grade fight-or-flight thing, over time, that's what's making us stupid, sick, and slow. And so while mindfulness or doing a free app may create a state change, you know, it might make you feel better in the now, meditation is creating a trait change. It is going in and healing you on a cellular level so that your brain gets faster, your IQ increases, your neuroplasticity increases, your body age reverses, your immune function gets better. And so these aren't just like, oh, let me just imagine rainbows and gurus and incense. It's like, no, you're actually healing things on a physiological level. You're changing your neurochemistry. And, and over time, 
just like the cumulative effect of stress can be very detrimental over time, the cumulative effect of meditation can be very beneficial. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that one of the greatest discoveries I feel like is of our time is that our IQ can actually improve, which is like people can go and look it up. There's more and more studies. You talk about it in the book. I think it's 23% that studies have proven that meditation have improved your IQ. And I've been reading more and more articles on that. And it's funny, I was uh, a smile came to my face when you were talking about people who have downloaded an app and then deleted it from their phones because I downloaded Headspace, which I can't remember if I told you um, last time we spoke, but I downloaded Headspace because I'd heard everyone talking about meditation and I sat down and they had this very specific way that you've got to sit. And that was just really brutal for me. I, I couldn't stand it. I was very, very uncomfortable. And it was like, block out your thoughts. My God, it was just driving me absolutely bonkers and trying to block out the sound. And all I could think about was the outside sound. And it was about the most uncomfortable, frustrating, pain in the ass thing that I've ever done. And I hated it. And I all but swore that I would never do meditation again because I found it impossible to switch my brain off. And at about the same time, I actually discovered or from my wife, uh, I started doing yoga with her, which although I couldn't switch my brain off completely, not even that close, but I could switch it off much more than I could if I was doing um, something else. And uh, this week I started doing Ziva for the first time. And one of the first things that I noticed, and it was funny because I actually switched the order of what you mentioned earlier. I actually did the meditation before I did the yoga. And I found that I was completely present in the yoga session. And I think it's the first mm. time that has ever happened. And I wanted to talk about here about meditation failure because I'm one of those meditation uh, failure people that if you and I weren't connected, I likely would still be hating on uh, meditation. But now I'm really, really excited. To, I've, I, I have committed to it. I'm really excited to do it for as long, you know, hopefully forever. My wife's doing it as well. Can you talk a little bit about this meditation shame spiral and for people who've experienced meditation before, that maybe it's not you as a person who's not a good fit for meditation. Maybe it's actually the way that you went about it, like me with the uh, Headspace app that I downloaded and then deleted. Yes. <laughs> so I thank you for sharing this and thank you for being open enough to give it another go and know that you are not alone. I hear this story multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. I downloaded this app. I tried to do it. I couldn't stop my mind from thinking. I felt like I was failing. And then I quit. And I, it makes me sad just because I know that there are millions and millions of people out there who think that they're failures. I actually dedicated my whole book to it. I said, anyone who's tried meditation and quit because you felt like a failure, you're not a failure. You just haven't been taught yet. And so the beautiful, hopefully um, stress-relieving fact here is that the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So trying to give your brain a command to shut up is as impactful as trying to give your heart a command to stop beating. It does not work. And yet this is the criteria by which we're all judging ourselves as to whether or not we can meditate. There's like one dude out there telling, telling everyone to clear their mind. And we got to find him and we've got to teach him we how do. to meditate. <laughs> patient zero. We got to get Exactly. He's patient zero. And he's got the same publicist that Kale has. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's really, like people really believe this. Even people who've never meditated before are convinced that the point is to turn off the brain. And I would argue that the point of meditation is to get good at life. No one cares how many or few thoughts you're having when you sit quietly in a chair. Everyone cares how kind you are, how present you are, how creative are you, how's your immune system, how's your sex drive, how's your intuition, 
People care about that stuff. Nobody cares if you can clear your mind, right? And the beautiful thing is that all of these physical, mental, IQ increasing benefits that we're talking about can happen even when you don't quote unquote clear your mind. Because thoughts, especially during Ziva, are an indicator that stress is leaving the body. And once you understand that meditation is a cycle, it's like a washing machine, like a cycle of stress release, then you stop beating yourself up for having thoughts and you celebrate them as part of the purging healing process. And that can be revolutionary for people in their practice. Um, but to your original question, like what did I see was missing from mainstream meditation? Well, when I first started Ziva, the apps weren't around yet. So I was just teaching straight up meditation face-to-face in my studio in New York. And I was no- I mean, people were having very profound results. People were committing. People were noticing their lives were changing. Their insomnia was going away. They were becoming fertile when their doctors had told them they were infertile. They were, you know, IBS was going away, migraines, panic attacks, like all these stuff just falling away. And then they would say, well, look, I want my mom to learn. She's in Idaho. Hey, I want my cousin to learn. She's in Brazil. Hey, can you ever go to the Virgin Islands? And I'd be like, yeah, I'll be on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> um, or, you know, can you go to Dubuque, Iowa? I'm like, maybe not. Um, so anyway, technology was just getting better. And so I just thought this thing is too good to rely on geography. You know, not everyone has access to a teacher in their hometown. And so we actually created the world's first online meditation training. It was before Headspace, before Oprah Chopra. And it was just me with my musical theater degree, my tap shoes and zero technology experience. But a hell of a lot of life experience. Yes, but a lot of life experience and thankfully some really smart friends. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and so we made the first course and it was an experiment. We didn't know if it was going to work or not. And slowly but surely it just grew and grew. And then we revamped it in 2017. And that is when I created the Ziva Technique. And I created the Ziva Technique because after six years of teaching just meditation, I realized that meditation alone was not enough, that more people were falling off the wagon than I would like. More people were not starting than I would like. And so as I started to ask deeper and deeper questions of, of really, truly, like, why are you not starting? Like, what's, what's, because you know, this is good for you. The science is in. Why are you not giving this practice or yourself a fair shot? And then the other question I really was interested in answering is why anyone could get the keys to the kingdom and put them down. Like yeah. that was the one that was really mind boggling to me. And so the two answers I got that, that, inspired me to start the Ziva technique was that when people were afraid to start, it was really about time. They're like, when you're stressed, you feel like you don't have enough time, that you're always behind schedule, that nothing, your, your to-do list will never fit inside of your day. And the reason that we have that relationship with time is because our brains are not functioning as well as they could. And so if you really just drill that again and again, that meditation gives you more time, it makes you more productive, it makes your brain more efficient, your sleep more efficient, you get sick less often, and just keep reminding people that the return on time investment is exponential, then that sometimes solves that issue. But the quitting issue, like why were people starting and quitting? They would say, well, I'm too busy, or they say, I'm, I'm this, that, the other. But when I got to the root of it, I realized is that people were terrified of feeling their feelings. People were terrified of facing the intensity of emotion and trauma and stress that most of us have stored inside. And most meditation teachers aren't talking about that. They're not talking about the purge or the catharsis that oftentimes happens when you do something as powerful as this. And so I just doubled down and I started warning people. 
like straight up like warning label of like, hey, don't start Ziva on your wedding weekend. Like, do not start this, don't start Ziva the week that you just got a new job, you know, because stuff's going to get uh, a little messier before it gets cleaner. And then on top of that, I wanted to equip people to handle the purge, to handle the catharsis, if and when it comes, rather than saying like, oh, don't worry about that. Let's just focus on enlightenment. It's like, no, we have to integrate that. We have to celebrate it. We have to equip people to process the level of intensity that we've been dealing with in our lifetimes. But now scientists are starting to say we can inherit trauma from somewhere between two to seven generations prior. And so that's not insignificant, especially in today's climate. Inherited generational trauma is, um, it's, a, it's a thing. And, and the cool thing about Ziva is that you can stop it in its tracks by you healing your stress, your cells, you're changing your epigenetics, you're changing what you're passing down to future generations. We'll be back with Emily shortly. Just a quick announcement for those who have their own podcast. I'm about to launch a brand new program called We Are Members that will help those who want to leverage their podcast, build a thriving business and stand out in their industry. Our goal for We Are Members is simple. We want to take you to 15,000 US dollars in monthly recurring revenue in the next six to 12 months. But we're not accepting everybody. It's really important that we have the right people and an alignment of values. So all those who are interested, just send us your info in the show notes. I'll link to a place where you can do just that. And we'll hop on a quick call, you and me, to learn more about your business, where you're at, and whether you're a good fit. We've got people from around the world who are already part of We Are Members and some of the most recognized industry experts who will be working with you on your business. Again, if you have a podcast and want to build a profitable business around it, We Are Members might be the perfect place for you. Just click on the link in the show notes for more info. All right, let's get back into the fun with Emily. Well, I know with this process, you've got mindfulness, meditation, manifestation. Can you give a quick insight into those three M's and what they do for the brain? Yeah. So mindfulness is really good at dealing with your stress in the now. Um, It's what I would call like a focused meditation. So that's what most of the apps are, the YouTube videos, the drop-in studios. Anytime someone's guiding you through, then you're directing your focus. And when you're using a directed focus style of meditation, a small part of the brain lights up, but very bright. Now, this is different from the style of meditation that we teach at Ziva, which is all about letting go. It's all about surrender. It's all about rest. It feels kind of like a nap sitting up. And this is where that um, healing of the old stress happens, where the trait change starts to go. Also, it's where I would say you get this return on investment, um, meaning that you get more time in your day. And then the manifesting piece is all about dealing with your dreams for the future. So it sounds a little hippy-dippy. It sounds a little woo-woo. Maybe not to you. Maybe not to your audience. Not to me. Definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. I would define manifesting as consciously creating a life you love. It is um, reminding yourself of your dreams. And what I've found is that the combination, and this might really be the thing that keeps you committed to meditation, but I found that the combination of meditation and manifesting is so much more powerful than either one alone. Because you could meditate all day, but if you're not clear about what it is that you want, it's very hard for nature to give you the thing. And conversely, you could manifest all day, lining your walls with vision boards, but if you're not meditating and your nervous system is riddled with stress and trauma and limiting beliefs that you can't even see, then again, it's going to be a lot harder for you to achieve your dreams. But when you do them together, you get rid of the stress in your body, you, you peel away these subconscious limiting beliefs and you remind yourself of your dreams every day, twice a day, and things start to show up a lot more quickly. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's like what you said earlier about meditation for life, not to get good at meditating. Uh, if we have an idea of what we want, this is simply just another tool or a weapon that we can have in our arsenal that's going to uh, get us there and, and achieve it as quick as possible. But releasing ourselves from the outcome, there are so many themes from what you said that I thought are really, really valuable for anyone who actually just wants to achieve anything, whether it's a successful marriage or relationship with their children or a business goal or whatever it might be. And that was one of the things that I really took out of your book and all of your teachings is that it's an immensely practical tool when a lot of people might think that meditation in the traditional sense um, is a bit woo-woo. And you've worked with a lot of elite performers from Navy SEALs and the NBA to top executives and doctors and Academy Award winners. Who stands out as the most elite out of all of those people, however you want to define it? Oh, fascinating question. I mean, I mean, I think you have to say Navy SEALs. I mean, you know, just as far as the mental and physical performance and what they put their bodies and minds through. Um, you know, and the, this one Navy SEAL, he, he was, he learned, he did Ziva online when he was in Afghanistan and he said he was meditating in a porta potty. And I was like, dude, you are more committed than me. I was like, I love meditation and I cannot say I would meditate in a porta potty. <laughs> um, it's a nice and, testimonial uh, to have. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he said it saved his life. You know, he said that having the ability to deregulate his nervous system or to downregulate his nervous system. Because when you're in that chronic fight or flight for a living, for your job, um, when, you, when you aren't granted the luxury of turning off or getting into rest and digest, you know, over time that can lead to adrenal fatigue and can lead to PTSD. And it can also lead to you not even having the, the capabilities of downregulating. I think that's why we see such high suicide rates from folks, you know, certainly after being in, in active combat. And so the fact that, you know, these Navy SEALs were using it while they were in the trenches, and then, my, you know, and then many of them are interested in actually becoming teachers now, you know, really is very heartening to me because it, it means that they might be able to much more enjoy their lives for the rest of their lives, which sometimes it's like when you're in that intense of a situation, the rest of life just feels boring. Um, I just had an interview yesterday um, with Larry Sanders, who's a former NBA player, and he, it was an interesting story, but his manager hired me to teach him because he was about to walk away from a $44 million contract and his manager was like, no, please come teach him to meditate. I really, <laughs> um, but I, so I taught him and I was like, look, I, I can't guarantee anything. Like I'll teach him to meditate, but I can't guarantee he's going to stay in the NBA, but he ended up leaving. And, and now and we fell out of touch until a few days ago and he posted this photo on Instagram and it was like advice to your former self. Like what advice would you give to your younger self? And he had Photoshopped a picture of him now and a picture of him like eight years ago. And he looks so much happier now. Wow. I mean, his face is like beaming sunshine and the picture of him 10 years ago, he looks sad, he looks depressed and he's a very, I'm not outing his secrets. He had a very public, um, you know, struggle with anxiety and depression and so, anyway, we just sat down yesterday for this interview, and he said that he considered Ziva like a really important part of his mental and physical boot camp when he was transitioning out. And he feels happier now than he's ever been. And he said that when he was in negotiations, walking away from $44 million, he's in the room with these people, and he said they're just talking, talking, talking. He's like, and I couldn't hear anything they were saying. I was just meditating, and I was imagining just cutting the cord from my root chakra to these people that represented my survival. And I was like, dude, good for you there's a lot of people who say they would, who think that they would, but wouldn't actually. And he did. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? 
How mm. how receptive were the Navy SEALs to everything that you were teaching? Is it something they were they were open to, uh, for, you know, across the board, or were there um, a few who weren't as receptive to it? Well, I've only worked with a few, so they just sort of found me organically, and then reached out and have then brought it to like one guy brought it to like his group of 10 folks. And then there's another retired Navy SEAL who's wanting to become a teacher. So I haven't been working like, I haven't like officially been hired by the Navy SEALs or been working face to face, but the few that I have interacted with have been super duper gung ho. And, and like they, I think they like it because he was so focused on performance. You know, it's so much about optimizing your brain and optimizing your body that I think it speaks their language versus, you know, a lot of meditation teachers are like a little bit more about ceremony and incense and stuff, which is, if that's your thing, awesome. It's just not, it's not my thing. Yeah. They want real world practical stuff that's going to help. What about people who want to try meditation or maybe even someone who wants a family member or a partner to try meditation uh, and maybe they don't feel like doing it in the first place. What do you, in your experience, has been a good way to get people who maybe need meditation who uh, to give it a try, even though they feel like perhaps it's a little bit woo-woo? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people come to my intro talks and they're like, I really, I really need this for my husband. I'm, I'm not going to take the course, but I'm going to get this for my husband. Or like, hey, can you, can you give this to my wife? Can you get my wife <laughs> meditating? And so it's always, 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 you got to clean your own house first. You want sure. your dad, your mom, your brother-in-law, your sister to meditate. You got to start with you. you gotta everyone else should do it. Not me. Just everyone yeah, else. It's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> if my husband would just go to therapy, then I'd be fine. You know? <laughs> Uh, I definitely had that story for a couple of years. Um, so we, you know, we have to clean our own house. And, and the beautiful thing that happens there is that as we change the lens through which we are seeing everything, everything changes. You know, if we have stressy lenses, then the whole world looks stressed. And so if we start to peel away our own layers and unlearn and peel away our own layers of ignorance, then sometimes relationships might change. Your job may change. Like, you're going to think that the world is changing, but actually it's you that's changing. And then for the folks that love it and their lives get better, they get less stressed, they get healthier, they get happier. And as you do that, then you inspire something that I call worthy inquiry. And worthy inquiry is basically like, does someone want to know about this thing? And are they willing to surrender something to get it? Because here's the meditation course that everybody wants. They want it to be free. They want it to take zero minutes and they want to never have to meditate again. <laughs> like that's really what everyone is looking for. Um, and I don't teach free meditation. I don't teach a one day meditation class. I have no interest in it. Um, I want to teach people who want to learn, you know, and that usually requires some skin in the game. Um, my course, the online course is 15 days. When I teach in person, it's four days. It's an hour and a half a day for four days. So there's, there's at the very least, you're surrendering your preference of your time, right? And, and then it's like, if you really, well, one, you weed out the people that don't want to be there, right? And that's great because no one should be forced to meditate. You know, like everybody comes to it in their own time when they're ready. Um, but I would say it depends on who you're talking to. So if you're trying to convince someone else to meditate, Again, if, if you've started with yourself and cleaned your own house, then the most powerful thing you can share is your own experience. Yeah, you know, I used to be struggling with this and now I'm this. I used to feel this and now I'm this. And no one can argue with that. You don't have to become a neuroscientist. You don't have to pretend like you're a meditation teacher if you're sharing your story. 
And then if people want all the science, you know, if they want to be equipped with facts, um, if they go to our website, which is just zivameditation.com, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles and studies. I've been collecting them since 2011. So basically every study, story, new thing that's been published, I've been categorizing based on, is this mindfulness? Is this meditation? Is this manifesting? And people can find that on our blog. Wow. So people can go there and I guess if they see someone else going through an amazing change or they can, you know, definitely notice someone being more relaxed or more productive or achieving a lot more in their life, maybe that is the best example rather than trying to force someone who doesn't want to be um, taught. Uh, a lot of people who, when we talk about meditation for high performers, high performers are always trying to squeeze as much as they can out of every single minute, myself included. Have you noticed an effect on a reduced number of hours of sleep required by people for those who have been doing Ziva meditation during the day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And for a lot of folks, especially in the beginning, if they're sleep deprived or if they've been dealing with insomnia, oftentimes in the first few weeks and even months, they need more sleep you know, sometimes a lot more sleep. I have an interview right after this with my friend Amber. And she, when she first took the course, was sleeping like 14, 16 hours a night. And she was like, Emily, I have a job. Like I can't <laughs> sleep for 16 hours a day and then come here for an hour and a half a day. But that's extreme. That's dramatic. Normally, most people are not like that. A lot of people are sleepy for a couple of weeks as their body is detoxifying and moving through the purge. And then because the meditation is so restful, because you're inserting these 15-minute chunks twice a day, which is equivalent of about an hour-long nap, um, well, two-hour-long naps, that over time, as you're building up that backlog of, of rest, and because your sleep becomes more efficient over time, then a lot of folks end up needing a bit less sleep. You know, and, and look, even if it was one hour less, if you used to need eight hours of sleep, but then you start to need seven, then for a 30-minute time investment, right? you're meditating twice a day for 15 minutes, that's 30-minute time investment, if it shaves off one hour at night that you need of sleep, then you're already 30 minutes in the black. And that's to say nothing of better decision-making, of getting sick less often, of the opportunity cost of stress, of losing your temper when you're frazzled. You know, so over time, like the, the return on time investment is a, is a real thing. Yeah, plus creativity and all those other things. Uh, what about how meditation has changed your life as a parent? Are there any um, practical tools that you've brought to parenting that you're like, oh, wow, I actually got the, this was inspired by your uh, teachings and education and whatnot in meditation? Yeah. I mean, I will say it, it's almost the other way around. I feel like, well, I, it's hard to say because, you know, my son is two. He turned two yesterday. And so at, when he was born, I've been meditating for 10 years. So I don't have any frame of reference of what it would be like to meditate or to be a parent without meditation. However, I will say that he has been my greatest teacher in presence. He has been my greatest teacher in surrendering and really embracing the now because I mean, they just change so quickly. I mean, you know, you have a 13 month old. So it's like they take a nap and they wake up and they have five more skills. They have five more words. There's so much more dexterous, <laughs> yeah. five more teeth. And, and so it's like, whoa, you know, things are falling away and new things are being acquired like hourly. You know, oh, you don't suck your thumb anymore, but you do know how to climb that, you know, couch. And so it's just a fascinating lesson in impermanence. And I will say that I, I have never felt happier or more present than when I'm with him. But it, it feels like this is almost like the reward for the 12 years of meditation that I've been training to be able to be with him fully. And that is such a gift and a blessing. Um, but I will say that um, I went to classes with him when he was a baby. They were RIE classes, R-I-E, 
which I don't remember what it stands for exactly, but it's about respectful parenting. And so with Rye, it's very much like nonviolent communication where you're speaking on observations versus judgments and you're just present. So in the Rye classes, it would be seven or eight babies and you would just sit there like in the chair, the adults are on the, on the circle, not touching, not speaking, not interacting. You only intervene if there's someone's in physical danger. But other than that, the babies are on their own and you are just super duper present with them on their level, watching them. You can affirm them, be like, I'm right here. I see you. And then in some of, they call it sports casting where you're like, oh, you picked up that cup. You look angry right now. No, that would be a judgment. I hear that you're crying. Are you upset? Which is different than you look angry. So yeah, that, I noticing. just, yeah. yeah, I caught myself. So it's, you're speaking an observation, which is almost like an out loud meditation practice that's sports casting, that present moment awareness. And you're speaking an observation versus judgments. I hear that you're crying. How are you feeling is different from, are you scared? You sound upset right? Someone can't sound upset. You look angry. What does anger look like? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, I hear you're crying. I saw that you skinned your knee. You know, would you, are you hungry? Uh, so it's, it's an interesting thing that I'm still practicing, obviously, but that, that nonviolent communication, that speaking in observation versus judgment and just the hyper-presence have all really served me as a parent. And now we're working on a kid's course. Um, nice. We're, creating what I hope to be the world's best kids meditation training. We're working with creators from Sesame Street and a Harvard child psychologist, and we're building a whole puppet. And so it's been really fun to get inside of a child's mind. So even though my son is only two and the course starts for four-year-olds, it's still letting me live in that world a little bit more. And he's probably advanced anyway. I get an idea inside of it. I think so, <laughs> but I'm, I'm the worst. I'm not objective. <laughs> it can be hard but that sounds like a really a really great project and i think something that a lot of parents around the world myself included would really love uh what what do you tell the athlete who's about to start their gold medal race at the olympic games or the university grad who's interviewing for their dream job or the ceo who's about to deliver a presentation to the board for the first time what do you tell them in that last one or two minutes to focus on before they're about to embark on something that feels really life-changing or potentially life-changing Mm, good question. So there's a couple of tech. One is very tactical technique and the other is a bit more conceptual, but a tactical thing is the balancing breath, something I call balancing breath. So if you can be backstage or in a bathroom or in the locker room, you know, it's, you don't want to do it like probably like in front of people because it looks weird because you're, you're closing the right and left nostrils. Um, but it's just a, an, an adaptation of, of alternate nostril pranayama breathing. Um, but this, it helps to balance the right and left hemispheres of your brain. We have a video of it too, which I can send to you if you want to put in the show notes. But when you close one nostril, you're de-exciting your metabolic rate, you're de-exciting your breathing. And when you close the right and left nostrils, you're helping to marry the right and left hemispheres of the brain, which is your critical mind and your creative mind. And, and the cool thing about balancing breath is you can do it quickly or slowly. So if you were just exhausted, but you had to amp it up for a game, then you could do it fast. Or if you're really nervous and you needed to appear relaxed for your pitch to the board, then you can do it slow and sort of de-escalate de things. Also, it helps me to just feel much more creative. So I like to think that it's giving you the simultaneity of critical mind and creative mind. So that's a tactical thing. And then the more um, conceptual thing is, I remember I gave a talk at Google a few years ago. It was many years ago. It was kind of the beginning of my career. And so to be asked to speak at Google when I'd only been teaching for a year or two felt like a make or break. I was like, well, this is it. You know, if I mess this up, my career is over. 
if I nail this, my career is made. You know, it felt like the penultimate thing. And my husband just reminded me, he was like, look, even if you totally blow it, right? Like you just forget everything. You are just a blithering idiot. It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Do you know what I mean? He's like, you're, you're imagining that like failure is like the, from a zero, I'm doing like a clock, you know, that it's just that you could totally fail. He's like, the reality is even if you were to be like your worst day would probably be like an 85%, you know? So he's like, you're talking about really a range of like 15% right now. And, and that 15% is not going to make or break your career. And even if you did, even if you just totally forgot your name, forgot how to speak and read and write and all of it, this one thing is still not going to make or break your career. And I think that's the, the important lesson to remember is that yeah. what's, what's meant for you is coming and what's not is not. Yeah, great lesson. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, let's move into what we have now is the win the day rocket round where we ask you 10 questions for really quick answers. You ready? This is where we get to find out the real you, Emily. Ready. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? We meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. Nice. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Evening wine. Nobody wants to see me on coffee. It's <laughs> not a pretty sight. <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Tell the truth. Tell the whole truth. Tell nothing but the truth. Maybe some answers there for another, uh, another interview. <laughs> no, Number four, what book do you gift the most? Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Oh, what's that about? It is, I mean, get ready. It is my favorite book <laughs> right now. So Glennon Doyle is an amazing writer. It's, it's sort of autobiographical, but she writes with such inspiration that she manages to take hyper-specific stories and have them have such universal relevance. It's told in a very unique way, but it's untamed. It's basically like untaming your spirit. Um, people are likening it to women who run with wolves. I think it's relevant to people, but not just women, but it is a story of uh, untaming yourself, of really listening to who you are and what you want. It's, it's so good. Yeah, good, uh, good, powerful message for today. Absolutely. I'll link to that in the show notes too. Uh, number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Hmm. Well, I don't know that it's quite there yet, but I'm really working on my codependence. So it's, it goes back to the tell the truth piece that I lie without even knowing that I'm lying. I'm lying to myself. I'm lying to other people. And it's not outright lying. It's not like purposeful deception. It's me telling other people what I think they want to hear. It's me people pleasing 24 hours a day, saying yes to meetings I don't want to say yes to, being nice to people that haven't earned it. Um, not saying the truth to my team, you know, it's just, it's just a death by a thousand cuts. And so I'm really working on being like, not brutally honest, gracefully honest, but I have a, I have like a post-it note here, like pledge allegiance to the truth. People pleasers don't believe in their dreams. <laughs> Other people's anger is not my responsibility. <laughs> so like, it's not a superpower yet, but I'm really working on it. And you've got that awareness around it, which I guess gives you, uh, makes you empowered to be able to go and make changes. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Ooh, we. 
I mean, the first person that's coming to mind right now is Marie Forleo. I love her. I admire her. We're acquaintances, but not friends. And I just, I'm so grateful for everything she's created. I've learned so much from her and I would love to sit down with her. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business apart from the post-it notes? <laughs> you have a lot of post-it notes. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll go to the, you know, the default is obviously meditation. And then I would say after that, it's um, Handel Method. So I work with a coach at Handel Method and they are very much about telling the truth, designing your life, you know, naming your dreams in 12 areas of your life and then putting in promises and consequences to make sure that you're moving towards those dreams. So I'd say that that's really shaped and influenced every area of, of who I am and what I do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Oh, well, just last night, my husband and I were talking about seeing the Northern Lights. Neither one of us have seen the Northern Lights. Yeah, great one. And number 10, final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? Mm. I mean, I think it's the manifesting piece. It's that, it's that two minutes, it doesn't take long, but it's just at the end of the meditation, I just ask myself, you know, how would I love to feel today? What's one thing that I would love right now um, and then you know it's varying in length or how you know how intensely i'm working on something um, but then one thing i learned from bj fogg is that this like a tiny little micro habit version of that is just when your feet hit the ground in the morning just saying today is going to be a great day because our mind has that confirmation bias it wants to be proved right so just saying today is going to be a great day is like the the micro super fast manifestors trick I love it. Everyone's looking for a magic bullet, but it's often those simple things that, that people have been doing for a while that just where that consistency or forming those habits can be really powerful. Uh, well, I want to finish with a quote from you. We meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. So go and grab a copy of Emily Fletcher's amazing book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, available now and go and check out Ziva Meditation. I will link to all that and more in the show notes. So Emily, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your clarity, your inspiration, and your wisdom. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Emily. Since our conversation, I've been doing meditation twice a day consistently for the first time in my entire life. So if it worked for a failed meditator like me, it can definitely work for you too. With how chaotic the world is at the moment, it's more important than ever to double down on self-care. Don't forget, if you have a podcast of your own and want to build a profitable business around it, check out We Are Members in the show notes. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.